the Oxford Middle East podcast. My name is Peter Schokus, and today I'm joined by the whole Almanac team to discuss notable events that took place in 2021, developments we're keeping an eye on in 2022, and our favourite Middle East-related books. After three and a half years of a crisis that threatened the very core of the Gulf region, GCC leaders have agreed to end divisions and usher in a new era of cooperation. Foreign countries are scrambling to evacuate their nationals, including diplomatic staff, from Afghanistan. The US is also having to consider helping Afghans who work with their forces, making themselves potential targets for the Taliban. Lebanon is ending the year in a state of paralysis while starting this new year in one. Its cabinet hasn't met for two months. The currency continues to lose value and the investigation into 2020's port blast in Beirut stalled. We begin in the Middle East where both Israeli forces and Palestinian militants have stepped up their attacks in the worst fighting seen in years. The UN now warning of the risk of full-scale war. So hello everyone, welcome to our New Year's episode. What's going to happen today is that each of the people present is going to say what their big event of the past year, so that would be 2021 was. They will say what they're looking out for in 2022, and then they will also say what their favorite book about the Middle East is. So we'll do one person at a time, and we will start with you, Kalyani, so please go ahead. Okay, so I kind of, imagining what other people would be talking about, decided to kind of go local to my interests in terms of what I thought was a very significant event of 2021. And that was the Boaziji University student protests in Turkey that took place basically over Uh, more than the first half of the year, from January up until late August. Basically, to contextualize it, demonstrations broke out on 4th of January against the appointment of uh, Meli Bulu by President Erdogan. Meli Bulu was uh, appointed as the rector of Boazici University, which is basically like the dean or etc., president or whatever, yet another impingement on sort of academic freedoms uh, and freedom of thought in Turkey. As a result... Hundreds of students gathered and, you know, academics protested as well. And it wasn't contained only to Istanbul, but of course, there were protests in Ankara and several other places uh, across Turkey. And one of the the reason I chose it actually is, first of all, because you have to take it in the context of what uh, sort of Erdogan's legacy in Turkey and what's been happening since really 2016, uh, where the coup attempt really sort of resulted in Erdogan trying to exert his stranglehold of power, intellectual uh, and sort of physical power over Turkey as a whole, and especially Istanbul, which was still like sort of a bastion of quote-unquote left-leaning thought. So that was one part of it. And the other is Boazici University itself, which is kind of not just a left-leaning university, but also a university that attracts students from across Turkey of all uh, sort of social classes, um, etc. So you would have very sort of conservative Muslim students protesting alongside, you know, pro sort of either whatever communist, pro LGBTQ, whatever it is, students, and they were all coming together. It's very rare to have that happen in Turkey, but they were all coming together to protest this, the appointment of this rector. I would have loved to have said, like, if we'd done this a little earlier, like, say halfway through the year, I'd have been like, you know what, maybe this is the sign of Erdogan sort of losing his grip over the, over the youth of Turkey, etc., which many people had wished it was. I think it's still significant because it shows that the protest is still alive despite his 18 years in power. Nonetheless, he has appointed a rector of his own choosing to replace the same one. So he kind of capitulated, but then did the same thing again. 
So we'll see what happens with that. And that's sort of what I'm looking to see in 2022, whether these protests that are happening at Boazuchi sort of continue in a certain way. And I don't think, I think it was a bit naive to hope that maybe these uh, protests signal change across Turkey and maybe a shift in Erdogan's power on their own, at least. Uh, and we've seen that with his appointing the next rector all on his own, as well as like opening two more faculty uh, departments uh, as part of like a midnight order. But I do think that, and it should be mentioned that the current tanking of the lira, which is ongoing and is uh, currently uh, dropped by like about 40% over the year against the dollar and 30% in November alone. It will be interesting to see whether Erdogan, who sort of first came into power with a very strong economic policy, whether this will sort of add to sort of the ongoing sort of intellectual, quote unquote, intellectual protest against him, whether this will actually be backed by sort of very serious economic considerations of the people, particularly after a pandemic. So I think that's, it would be interesting to see whether any of this actually shifts Erdogan's power and in which case how that will affect the larger region. And your book? The book I chose is Shah Shahs by a Polish journalist whose name I'm going to butcher, but I'm going to try anyway, which is Richard Kapuscinski. It was written in 1980, published in 1982. And it's a really short book. It's by no means sort of like if you want an, you know, a complete history of the Iranian revolution, this is not it. But nonetheless, it's a really good account of basically the decline of uh, Mohammad Reza Shah Pahlavi uh, and sort of the rise of Khomeini from a journalist perspective. So he was in Iran at the time. He was holed up in a hotel. He's by no means an Iran expert in that sense. He doesn't know Farsi or any anything like that. What he is an expert on is sort of report. He was a war correspondent, so a foreign correspondent. So he's reported, you know, I think he reported about like 27 coups and revolutions over the course of his career. So well, he's no expect, expert on Iran, and I'm sure many people can sort of read into sort of, in some ways, he stereotypes the Middle East, but in other ways, he sort of is very sympathetic to the Iranian people, which is not something that happened at the time. At the time, it was very much, you know, why would they sort of go against democracy and choose Khomeini, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of the writing that came out of that time was sort of baffled at this quote-unquote backward shift. But what he does instead is show the kind of uh, suffering that was endured by the Iranian people under the Shah and under his uh, the Savak, which is the secret police. And he's a very, very good writer as well. So for anyone sort of uninitiated to like Iranian history and who wants an easy read, it's less than 200 pages, but it's beautifully written. So this is what I chose for today's podcast. Perfect. And uh, Guy, you're next. Um, so my big event was uh, The Fall of Kabul and the a withdrawal of the American forces from Afghanistan. I think that's pretty massive. Um, yeah, it marks the end of the 20-year war since 9-11, and it ended with the defeat of the Americans and kind of their humiliation, which is which is pretty important. I think it's uh, really humiliated the Americans in the region and in the world as a whole, and marks a sort of slow drawback and uh, withdrawal of American power in the region and the wider world. There's also going to be a massive economic crisis. There is an economic crisis in Afghanistan. You've got a lot of commentators saying that there's going to be potentially humanitarian catastrophe since uh, a lot of people in Afghanistan were reliant on a sort of rentier system with foreign aid and donor funds 
going to feeding people basically now those funds have been frozen and the us has even frozen 9.5 million dollars i think in the central bank the taliban are really going to struggle to look after the people in general on top of that it's a war-torn country so it's going to be a bit of a mess besides that you've also got the qataris and who support one faction and the pakistanis who support another and you've got other regional players like China, Iran, who are also going to try and have influence in some somewhere or another. What I'm looking out for in 2022 is kind of similar to that, um, related to that. So I'm interested in China's, how China's going to step into the shoes, I suppose you could say, that the US has left. They won't be the same kind of vibe at all. China's got its own special way of doing things with a lot more money lending and a lot less uh, going for human rights in apostrophes or whatever it'll be interesting to see how they express their interest and pursue their interest in places like china central central asia which are both incredibly important for their belt and road initiative and as well how they relate to the gulf countries that'd be fun yeah especially in the context we can't forget of rising antagonism or rhetoric of rising antagonism between east and west i think everyone will notice that like in the last couple of years china from being a sort of neutral place that people don't really think about it in an adversarial sense. Now, a lot of people in Western countries are talking about China as the next enemy and a Cold War 2.0. So it'd be interesting in this Cold War to see which side the Middle Eastern countries or countries of that region will choose if they have to choose a side, if the Americans will push them, if the Chinese will push them. I'm excited to see. My book that I've chosen is uh, Ottoman Odyssey by Alev Scott. So completely unrelated. Alev Scott's a British Turkish journalist, so she goes to um, initially Turkey before she gets banned uh, in search of traces of the Ottoman Empire, usually in the form of minorities. So she talks to the Afro Turks, who are descendants of slaves in Turkey, um, and have their own sort of culture and their own uh, understanding of self. Um, she talks to Bosniaks, who don't speak Turkish but have a strong connection to or like have an adoration for Erdogan and the Ottoman Empire. And a lot of it is about na- how nationalism swept away all of this heterogeneity, but traces of it still remain, which is pretty exciting and cool. Then it is my turn. My big event of the year, like both relate to Israel. The first was the Israeli elections, because after over a decade in power, Netanyahu finally left under a cloud of controversy. And I was very happy to see that because I thought he was an odious man. The unfortunate situation is that my massive hopes of it being an improvement or the new government being an improvement over the old one were dashed when in May the Israelis started bombing Gaza, which is the second half of my big event of the year. There's not only, you know, my big events of the year because it was sad and horrific what happened, but what I did realize, and some of you might have realized it as well, was how active it seemed people in the west were about it like it seemed to be much more prevalent on social media than previous israeli incursions in the west bank into gaza and friends of mine who had never really cared about the conflict before got out or got in touch with me and in order to ask me if i could send them good articles or give them some information about why it was happening or who they could donate to and the fact that um, and the twins Mohammed Al Kurd and Muna Al Kurd, I think they both also were named by Time Magazine as among the hundred most influential people in the world, which shows how big the Palestine question has become the last year. So for me, those were very encouraging developments 
despite the very sad situation in which they happen. So on the other hand, like Gaza and Sheikh Jarrah and Israel as a whole is very sad. But the fact that it is getting so much more attention is is very positive. And also it shows that the, actually I'll just call it propaganda of Israel at times hasn't been quite as effective in among younger people as it has among older people. The thing I'm looking out for next year, uh, there's two of them. One of is the same as last year, which is the death of the Saudi king. I'm not looking forward to it necessarily, but I'm very curious what's going to happen if he dies, just as I was one year ago. Because if he dies, he is part of the old guard of, of Middle Eastern leaders. And will that change, for example, Saudi Arabia's stance towards Israel? Also, will that cause the changes currently happening in Saudi Arabia to go even faster? Because Mohammed bin Salman now feels that as king, he has even more absolute power than, than he already does. So that's, for me, going to be interesting. The second thing is the normalization with Syria. In October, the Jordanian king had a phone call with Assad. Assad has also been visited the UAE, and Syria will host the energy conference in 2024. So it does seem that these countries, unfortunately, are repairing their relationships with, with Assad, which, you know, again, he is also an even more odious man than Netanyahu was. So it, I'm a bit disappointed, I guess, that he is being allowed back into the fold, but on the other hand, I also totally understand that you can't keep him out forever, even though I feel that would be the more reasonable approach. Um, regarding books, my books are the same as last year, so I'm not going to mention them. But it, what I'm instead going to do is mention what the people who were on this episode last year predicted just to see how everything's gone. The first thing is Felix. Um, he mentioned the Libyan civil war, which I guess has had a relatively positive development. There's been a rapprochement between Turkey and the UAE, so they're not on opposite sides of the war there anymore, or not as much. The Libya has also announced elections in which the son of Gaddafi is going to run, if I'm not mistaken. So hopefully he doesn't win, because that would be a bit of a sad state of affairs. Michael mentioned that he was looking out for Biden's approach to Iran and the JCPOA. Um, the re-entry of America or Iran into the JCPOA has so far not happened. And especially because of the current Iranian government, you know, there has been very little progress. On the other hand, mo- many Israeli intelligence and military officials have said that Netanyahu's Iran policy, which was very much in line with Trump's Iran policy, was a narrow-minded and counterproductive policy. So at least there seems to be a bit of reflection on that side. Freddie mentioned the normalization of um Arab states with Israel. There hasn't been any progress there. Um, after we recorded Morocco and Bahrain, both normalized relations, but that has been fairly inconsequential. I mentioned the Saudi king. He is still alive. Haja looked at more Arab involvement on Morocco side in the Western Sahara, but I haven't been able to find any clear information on developments. Like the UN peacekeeping mission was renewed and Algeria has closed its airspace to Morocco, but that's it. But we have done an episode on it, so I'd recommend people who haven't done so to listen to it. Um, Rose looked at how Iran was doing, and the answer to that is incredibly poorly. The inflation is about 40%. There's been water protests. There's a massive number of COVID deaths, and they have had their election in massive quotation marks um, earlier this year. Max also looked at elections, and he was hopeful, but in the end, they ended up going the wrong way. And the hardliners won. And Helena hoped that Lebanon's situation would improve, and that has absolutely not happened. There's blackouts, there's a lack of medicine, there's sectarian violence. So overall, the outlook from last year has not been very good for this year. 
Uh, with that, my part is done. So go ahead, Isabella. All right. Well, actually, as I was listening to Guy, got me thinking a little bit more about my big event for 2021. And I actually began to think even more about, say, gender relations, which is actually a big uh, interest of mine. So what I had previously planned to talk about is actually going to shift a little bit, so I'll be answering differently. But um, like Guy, my uh, big event from 2021, being from the U.S. and living in the U.S. this past year before coming to Oxford, was, of course, the the fall of Kabul and the uh, U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. Being in the U.S. when this happened, obviously this was huge news and um, was highly controversial in the U.S., just as it was everywhere around the world, news-wise. So um, I know there were lots of people in the U.S. that were for the withdrawal uh, to say, quote, end the war, bring the soldiers back home, all of those, uh, all of that kind of rhetoric. And then there were plenty of other people in the U.S. that were highly concerned about how hasty this withdrawal would be and what situation it would leave Afghanistan in. And as we have seen, um, the fallout has been pretty, pretty serious um, with the fall of Kabul and the Taliban's uh, effective takeover. Um, I think uh, what I'm sort of looking out for in 2022 um, as a result is to see what will occur with women's rights in Afghanistan and uh, gender relations. I know that the Taliban has answered several questions. I think even NPR, uh, one of NPR's journalists had uh, interviewed um, a member of the Taliban and received answers sort of based on women's rights, such as, oh, women will have rights, they will be, quote, respected, all of these things. But there has also been um, other sources saying that that's not really what's occurring. Um, as of right now, there's been talk of even forced marriages occurring in Afghanistan um, between uh, Taliban soldiers and uh, women. So it will be interesting to see how women's rights are negotiated by uh, Taliban leadership. Um, that's what I'm sort of looking out for in 2022 is what uh, gender relations and the situation for women will look like in Afghanistan. And your book? Ah, the book would be, um, thank you for reminding me, would probably be, I took a course when I was in undergrad called Peoples and Cultures of the Middle East. And we read several ethnographies in the course. The course actually sealed my interest in Middle Eastern studies. One book I remember, I think it was the first one we read actually, that really made an impact on me and sort of made me very interested, especially in gender relations in the Middle East, was uh, by an anthropologist, Palestinian-American anthropologist named Lila Abu Lugav. And this ethnography that she wrote was called Veiled Sentiments. Um, and it was written during the time she was with a Bedouin community in the Western desert of Egypt. Um, so she studied gender relations and oral lyric poetry of young men and women. So I, I really enjoyed the book and um, it just made me more interested in uh, Middle Eastern studies as a discipline and specifically in uh, gender relations. Oliver, are you ready? So my big event from 2021, which is a very big event, sadly links to one of the sort of looking forwards from last year, which is the descent of Lebanon into further crisis. Obviously, after the Beirut explosion of August 2020, there was hope with money coming in from abroad and that, you know, Lebanon might, with the coming of 2021, might be looking up, as was hoped by someone on the podcast last year. 
Uh, but as you mentioned, Piotr, already, sadly, that hasn't been the case. The already crushing inflation, which was which has been going on since 2019, has has gotten worse and worse. With I, I believe the Lebanese pound on the black market in January beating at about 9,000 Lebanese pound to the dollar, where it today stands at 28,500 to the dollar. So obviously that's led to a lot of the country plunging. I think about more than 80% of the country is now living in in poverty. Obviously the financial crisis has led to uh, fuel shortages, which have been very widely publicised. With I believe in October the two main power shut stations in the country shutting down, leaving the country completely without electricity, which obviously during the pandemic is even more disastrous because, you know, this has led to hospitals not having having electricity, having to count on generators which are run by diesel, which then hasn't been available either. So for me, that's been a really big thing. I visited Lebanon myself in January of this year, and I was able to see there, you know, the effects of inflation and also got caught up in a huge COVID lockdown, which seemed very unfair on the people um, because all shops were closed and left people with no way of getting essential things which they needed. Um, there has been a tiny positive point, which is that in September, Lebanon finally got a new government, which uh, which resigned. The previous government resigned after the explosion, of course, in 2020. I am not too optimistic about it um, because the government is led by uh, Najib Mirati, um, who's been prime minister uh, a few times before. He's a well-known Lebanese billionaire. Well, I think a lot of the world looks at Lebanon and feels a completely new approach is needed. Um, Mikhati hails from exactly the same political class of people who led Lebanon into the crisis, which it is now. Um, so that was a really big thing for me, which I'm sadly not too optimistic about. And then the thing I'm looking out for in 2022 is uh, Lebanon's neighbour, which is the further development of the conflict in Syria. Obviously, the Syrian conflict was really... Uh, really publicised uh, in 2015, 2011, with ISIS rising to power. But now, for quite a long time, uh, people seem to have sort of forgotten about it. Well, actually, I think we're further away from a solution there than than, than we or than Syria ever has been. Um, in the north of the country, there's this military stalemate, which is hugely complex, obviously being the battleground for a proxy war. And then the political stalemate... Um, where, for example, in October, the Syrian Constitutional Committee in Geneva failed to draft a constitution. And then, of course, there were the elections uh, in 2021 as well, um, the first since 2014, where Assad won 95% of the vote and now has been sworn in as president until 2028. so I'm really looking out to see any developments. But again, I'm not very hopeful because it seems that not much is going to be changing. And all the while, the people of Syria have had horrendous poverty and hunger, have reached an all-time high. Prices of essential products have gone up by hundreds of percents. But I always look forward uh, you know, to 2022 or perhaps beyond with, with, with some hope, even though that is sort of tucked away behind lesser expectation and then my favorite book um, at the moment obviously it's very hard to pick links in with this it is um, the book called destroying a nation uh, the civil war in syria which has only come out in 2017 being dutch i have to bring a little dutch element into this it was written by nicolaus van dam who um, is a dutch scholar um, but also very uh, very experienced dutch diplomat 
who uh, was ambassador to a string of countries, including Iraq, Egypt, and Turkey, and many others. And in 2015, he was appointed the Dutch Special Envoy to Syria. So he has an <laughs> unparalleled combination of, of you know, experience and knowledge of Syria. And the book is obviously a, a comprehensive account of the Syrian conflict, but it's also very clear. And the great thing of it is that um, Nicolas van Damme dedicates a huge portion of it, as is necessary, I think, to understanding the conflict, to the rise of the, the Ba'ath Party, and basically a huge summary of, of Ba'athist history, which enables, you know, because so many things are linked, the, the conflict doesn't stand alone. In 2011, so many things have been running in Syria since the 70s and 80s, which have just been waiting to burst, as they did. And the thing I really I enjoyed about the book as well is that obviously Nicolas von Damme being a diplomat, um, he also dedicates quite a bit at the end to looking forward to, to potential ways that can be gone about to to find a solution or just potential scenarios, which again don't sadly look very promising for at least the next year, but hopefully um, hopefully in the future. So I could definitely recommend it to anyone who uh, has an interest in Syria because it is a fantastic, fantastically written book as well by someone who has really really great knowledge of the region. Go ahead, Adam. So for me, um, 2021 uh, has been, obviously it's been extremely eventful um, in terms of political events in the Middle East, or what we call the Middle East, I would say, Southwest Asia. I would say that my most important thing was in Palestine, what happened in May. The events in May in Palestine has been, they have been something, I wouldn't say maybe, maybe it's, it's a stretch to say that they were unprecedented, but they were definitely something that we haven't seen in a while. And the reason wasn't because of the violence. It wasn't because of the scale of the events. It was because Palestinians from all over the world, but most importantly, inside of historic Palestine, have been able to um, find unity in their struggle against Zionism. And that I've been speaking to people in Haifa. I've been speaking to people in Nazareth. I've been speaking to people in the West Bank and in Gaza. Um, and they were all saying the same thing. We, for the first time since forever, feel united. And it was quite incredible to see how there is, it was, it was a clear example of colonial violence being exercised on an indigenous population, if you look at it from, from that lens. And you could see how the result of that war was defeat for Israel. And the definition of that is because, I mean, I would say that because I think that the definition of colonial war is that if the colonizer doesn't win, it means that the colonized or the indigenous succeeds in their struggle because they prevail, which is what happened in Gaza. So yeah, that was quite, quite an extra, extraordinary event for me. And I, I thought it was very inspiring and also stressful <laughs> for everyone in the diaspora. But yeah, no, that was absolutely incredible. Um, so that's what I would say about 2021. Looking ahead into 2022, I'm really curious what's going to happen with the Aswan Dam. I think it's coming to uh, a head now. You know, it's, it's interesting how different interests are coming into clash there, especially with, it's interesting to see the contrast between the leadership of Egypt before 2011 and then during the short Mubarak period and now with Sisi, how... Basically, they have no idea what they're doing, in a way. <laughs> and they, they know that they can't intervene militarily, but they are willing to say that they are, but they can't do it because of US influence and so on. But 
uh, I really hope that they, they could find an Africa-centered or the region-centered solution to that crisis, because I think there's potential to solve it and to for, for every country to benefit from the Nile. But it will require a lot of work, probably on the diplomatic side. And I'm not sure that that is even possible, especially since Sudan right now is in turmoil after uh, Hamdouk's resignation and lots of you know protests in the streets. But yeah, hopefully. hopefully. Just for clarification, you said Oswandan, but do you mean the Ethiopian Renaissance? Oh, yeah. Gosh. <laughs> no worries. Yes, yes, yes. Of course, I meant the Ethiopian Renaissance dam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's one of them is just there. <laughs> well, it's, was, it's quite that, big as well, but yeah. <laughs> that was that was news in, in the 50s, wasn't it? No? <laughs> Indeed, yeah. And then my favorite book relating to Southwest Asia and North Africa is definitely Ra'itu um, Ramallah by Murid uh, Al-Barghuthi, which translates to I Saw Ramallah by Murid Al-Barghuthi, um, who was a Palestinian. Poet and a writer. And I love that book because it really, when I, I first read it in English and then I read it in Arabic later on. And it was interesting for me because I, it really spoke to me in my experience of going to Palestine as someone who was distant from that place for a long time, even though it was obviously different from him because he's going back to Palestine after 30 years of not being there or 20 years um, due to the occupation and his exile in uh, Egypt and elsewhere. But the feeling was very similar. And um, it's written in a really beautiful poetic language, which actually you can appreciate even with the translation. So yeah, I would definitely recommend everyone reading it. And it, and it gives this um, very human, very personal view of the situation of what does it mean to be a Palestinian? What does it mean to be a Palestinian in exile? What does it mean a Palestinian Palestine? And it... Um, shows this seldom shown um, reality of this split, of this um, wall between the diaspora and the people who are still in Palestine and how difficult it is to really know what does it mean to go back to Palestine. Like He says this one thing in the book which stuck with me, which is we will know that we've returned to Palestine only when we will get bored of it, when we we'll get bored of the scenery when we are exhausted by the heat and we stop like romanticizing this land, which is a land, you know, it's, that's what it is. But because we've lost it, this is why we cherish it so much, or this is why we cling so much to it, even though it's completely ordinary, <laughs> basically. right? <laughs> so yeah, when we get bored of it, when we are, f- when we were fed up with it, this is when we've returned. <laughs> So, Matthew, go ahead. So my big event um, from 2021 actually happened right at the beginning of 2021, which was the uh, resolution of the GCC Qatar crisis. You know, I think this is really indicative of Saudi Arabia um, and the UAE's um, ideas to sort of like turn a page and um, seek to manage or resolve, even resolve, you know, regional conflicts through dialogue and diplomacy, you know, rather than through conflict. I think we're going to see this play out um, over the next year in the renormalization of relations with Syria, which, you know, is consistently going on as it becomes more and more clear that it looks like Bashar al-Assad is going to win the Syrian civil war. And, you know, the continued um, normalization of relations between Israel and um, the various Arab states in the region, especially in the Gulf. Sweet. The upcoming year epi- or upcoming thing you're looking out for? Or would that be the Syria thing? 
Uh, no, no, no. So the upcoming thing, uh, we're going to go across the region. So I specialize in Jordan and historically in Jordan and Iraq. So neither of these events strangely have anything to do with Iraq or Jordan. But the, what I'm looking forward to next year is the upcoming elections in Libya. So, you know, the ceasefire was brokered in 2020 by the UN. Um, and then elections were supposed to happen at the end of December. They did have to be postponed until the end of January 2022. So it'll be exciting to see, you know, the first comprehensive elections since the Arab Spring and the peace agreement between the government of National Court and General Haftar's forces. And, you know, it's going to be really interesting to see what the elections in a united Libya look like, because whoever does end up becoming the leader of Libya faces a series of challenges with, you know, just reconciliation from the civil war normalization of relations with Arab neighbors, as well as the European Union, the United Nations, the United States, and, you know, the ongoing conflict in the Eastern Mediterranean over petrochemical hydrocarbon resources there, um, which I think Libya is increasingly going to become a player between that conflict of, with Turkey, Israel, and Egypt. Do you have any faith in the elections? Because I'm inclined um, not to, <laughs> to be honest. Well, I had... One big thing that sort of restored faith for me was when they said, when they, a court dismissed Gaddafi's son's candidacy um, from being president of Libya, which was, you know, I think a plus um, going forward. I think we, you know, Libya, what's best for it is to have a sort of total removal from the past. So nobody left over from Gaddafi's government, nobody left over from you know, and sort of a, a reconciliation between those, you know, some of the ministers from Haftars and government, and some of them from the government of national court, if that's possible. If not, I think the UN government of national court will be successful in, in um, running the nation if they win the elections. And your book? So my favorite book on the Middle East has to be generally, it probably is Eugene Rogan's The Arabs, but a more recent book that, yeah. <laughs> A more recent book that I like is actually um, How the West Stole Democracy from the Arabs by Elizabeth Thompson. Um, it talks a lot about the Syrian Arab Congress in 1920 and how, you know, Europeans at the Paris Peace Conference after World War I, um, you know, didn't fulfill the promises that they made to Prince Faisal. And it deals with a lot of these ideas of Greater, the vision of greater Syria after World War One, which is something I'm really interested in um, and thinking about delving into for a master's thesis. And a lot of the research that um, Elizabeth Thompson did uh, for this book occurred at the Middle East Center at Oxford, which is very cool. And of course, you know, as all good books, as a you know yardstick of approval for good books on the region, it does have the Eugene Rogan stamp of approval on the inside. He has his little review. So... Yeah, I think it's very good. I'm only about halfway through it now, but I'm looking forward to finishing it this year. Thank you for listening to this episode of Almanac, the Oxford Middle East podcast. Almanac is a student-run initiative at the Middle East Centre in the University of Oxford. The opinions expressed in the podcast do not in any way represent the official opinions of the University or of the Middle East Centre.